Welcome to Human Stories with Jill Hazard Rowe, where we explore humanity in all of its realms. We are so excited to have in the studio LaGrande Lolo. LaGrande, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. I'm, um, I'm so honored. Um, I think LaGrande and I met. He came to a function at my house. That was the first time we met. And then I've seen you dance here and there a little bit as my son has performed in some of the same shows as you. But um, I really know nothing of your story, LeGrand, and I'm just so grateful that you're willing to share it with the Human Stories audience. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, we kind of talked about this before recording, but just the the value of changing the world with stories. And there's actually, um, there's a, a title in Psalm 1, which uh, it simply states um, as, uh, um, my brain is really frying right now <laughs> um tusitsala which translates to uh, storyteller mm. and i think there's just the idea that i've always related to this idea that um it was actually robert louis, robert louis stevenson that was called this title by the samoan people because of his storytelling and so i've always related to this idea of wanting to tell stories whatever that medium is be it writing dance etc that's beautiful how do you feel about telling your own story today it's exciting and nerve-wracking, but also mostly exciting. Perfect. Yeah. So for the audience that you can't see us, let me just tell you with every podcast, I come in with no notes. Um, Eliza's, we have no notes. We hear the story with the audience. Also, LeGrand sits here with no notes. And so what he's going to be sharing with you comes purely from his heart and from instinct on what he feels like he should be sharing. So with that, I'm just going to turn over to you. Yeah. So I guess starting at the beginning, as one does, um, I was born in Denver, Colorado, uh, raised in Aurora, Colorado area. Um, my parents um, met initially at BYU Hawaii. Mm. My father is um, from Samoa, the tiny island in the middle of the ocean. And my mother kind of grew up all over the place. Um, her father was in the Air Force. And so uh, she spent kind of time all over the U.S. and... Ultimately, for a time, the family settled in Colorado, which was hence why my uh, parents relocated there. And I was born there and was raised raised there till I was about six. Um, uh, at the time, my dad, he was he was pursuing an education as well as um, working as like a security guard at, uh, at a prison. And it just wasn't his thing. It made him very unhappy. Um, and ultimately, it got to the point where he got very sick from just the stress of the situation. He missed home. He didn't enjoy the weather of Colorado. Um, it was a lot drier, obviously, than a tropical island would be. Um, and ultimately, my parents made the decision to relocate to Samoa. And so at the age of six, I had my older brother, who's three years, about three years older than me, and then my younger brother, who's about two and a half years younger than me, all of us moved to Samoa. And that was <laughs> blessing and curse at the same time. I like to say that the, the opportunity to grow up in a third world country, very different from America, as well as um, kind of the culture shock of that, of growing up in a way as a kid in your formative years for like six years and then moving to Samoa. And like, I was excited, actually. I was like, oh my gosh, I get to go where my dad's from. I get to see his culture. I get to just be like, he, he would tell me stories as a kid of like yeah. growing up. And that was always really important to me. Um, but ultimately, yeah. not, not to make it a sob story, but it was hard 
for me growing up in Samoa. I think for the main reason being that it's a it's a hyper Christian, hyper conservative, and it's a small island with a lot of closed minded things. And that's not a riff on Samoa. That's just the fact of the matter in a lot See, of ways. That surprises me. They're they're beautiful and kind people. It's mm-hmm. ingrained in their culture to be kind and to uh, be community based, which one hundred percent I I claim as part of my own culture and my representation of my ancestry of community and love and support and caring for people. But socially, there's a lot of small mindedness when it comes to people being different. And in their view, from my experience growing up, there's male, female, and then there's a culturally accepted third gender um, referred to as a fafafine, which I I apologize to any Samoans or Polynesians for my incorrect translation, but from my understanding, it means a fake female is basically what it means. And it, I would compare it to representation-wise it, as a drag queen is the closest comparison I would think of because uh, they're, they're born male and dress in drag and kind of live within this middle ground of where they stand in society. They sometimes are treated as female, sometimes somewhere in between. It's it's an interesting middle ground. Um, trying to know the ins and outs of it is sometimes difficult for me because that was actually something I tried to distance myself from because I was constantly called that, fafafine, and then other slurs for being effeminate. And so in a lot of ways, that was really hard because I felt like Samoa chose before I did who I was. But are you telling me like that's socially accepted? It is socially accepted in the sense that it's just it's just a thing. It's just something that like they're so an edu- it's not like it's honored or it, it, yeah. it's just recognized. It's recognized. Yeah, it's not necessarily something lauded, but it's not necessarily something that's like terrible it's it lives in this kind of middle gray area and and I think the the main thing with that is that in some ways it felt derogatory to me yeah I was gonna say it must have had something because you didn't want to be mm-hmm. associated with that yeah and with that it was like that started like the first year I was there like there was like <laughs> they they <laughs> wasted no time <laughs> in uh, in in making sure, like, oh, you're different, you're more effeminate, you're supposed to be a boy, but you act more girlish, so you must be this. And so already, kind of like the the imposing of stereotypical gender norms and roles was, like, immediately brought to my forefront as a kid. Now, was this done at church, at school? Primarily at school uh, and in, like, um, uh, social circles as a kid. At church, not so much. Um, uh, Did, was your family affiliated with any Christian denomination? Yes. Um, uh, this is something I forgot to mention. Um, uh, <laughs> both of my parents, um, uh, my mother was raised um, uh, LDS, and my father converted later in life. Um, and they were married, married in the temple and sealed together. And so they raised all of us kids um, in that as well. Okay. Yeah. And so um, going into Samoa, there, it's, if I remember correctly, the um, the average is that one in four people is LDS in Samoa. Oh, really? I yeah. was going to ask what the makeup was there. So it's a pretty high percentage okay. um, of the population. And um, 
we actually um, lived on the LDS compound where they have the LDS high school. At the time, they had an LDS elementary school before they they, they tore it down later on, um, as well as the temple. So it was like all there in this little like mini campus. Um, and um, where we lived was a, a house uh, kind of across the way. And so... Um, already that's i'm in a i'm in a microcosm within a microcosm yeah there you go <laughs> where yeah. do you run and I, you're an, on an island and, yeah, and you're on an island it's, I, it's you gotta real... learn to swim <laughs> and i did <laughs> it's funny because um something that I, I like to laugh about but there's always like you know like the hint of the the tragedy underneath is that i felt like moana that like she's like, I've been staring at the edge of the water as long as I can remember and I felt that where it's like I'm just stuck here on this island and I can't escape I'm just I'm gonna die here like I knew that I ultimately to some extent there's like the dramatization of a kid being like oh it's never gonna end and I'm just gonna be here but yeah it was hard when you're a kid and when you're a teenager and you're in the middle of a lot of turmoil it feels like forever yeah so how long did did you stay there your whole childhood then? Yeah, pretty much. I stayed there until I was 18. So um, oh. from ages 6 to 18, so about 12 years. Yeah. Was there. Yeah. So I don't know. Let's – Um. I'd like to talk about some of the challenges you mm-hmm. had there and also some of the things that you found joy in, particularly mm-hmm. maybe looking back now as an adult where we yeah. see things a little differently. Um, let's talk about first uh, – the beautiful things mm-hmm. that you learned yeah, in your dad's country. One of the things that I loved is, of course, as I mentioned before, the importance of family and community. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one thing in a reverse way when I first came to the U.S. after a long time was how different the, um, the cultural norm of society, of how, like in Samoa, the cultural norm of society is you live with family, you take care of family, you look after each other. Um, it's just normal to like, if someone's in need, typically people don't ask, they just show up. It's like, do you need food? Here's food. Do you need help with something? We're here. Like it's, that's just expected. Like it's not anything that you even ask for necessarily. Like you can ask it, but it's like half the time they're already on their way. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but when I came to the U S as well, the, the inverse of that was like feeling very like kind of every man for himself is what it felt like sometimes where it's the, the individualistic versus the community mindset. So that was something I really cherish. I mm-hmm. think about growing up in Samoa is, um, had a lot of family. family. I was going to ask if you had lots yeah. of family there. Um, my, on my dad's side, we have a this may it's like um it's a stereotype for a reason but it's funny because um you're typically you you could be related to like half the island that there's Absolutely. just a l- lot of widespread families and like there's intermingling of of people and marriages and so there's just a lot of that's a cousin that's a cousin that's your auntie and yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> i have a friend that's polynesian and and everybody's auntie Mm-hmm. I'm like, I want to be part of your family. <laughs> yeah, literally. Everyone's empty. How many how many aunts does your kids have? <laughs> a ton. As many that want to show <laughs> as up. As many as we want. <laughs> yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah. And so I'd say that's the, the first major thing that comes to mind. Um, something else that I loved about Samoa, of course, how green it was. Mm. It's, um, it's a volcanic island, and it's surrounded by clear blue water uh sky is always blue right bright blue so like Mm. to the point where it's like it feels double the blue that Mm -hmm. you see here and um just green year round obviously there's rainy seasons and dry seasons but there's 
you I loved being able to always have something green to look at. I love nature for that way and I and I definitely thank my upbringing for that of like having nature around me all the time. And so I just love nature for that reason of the greenery and um right the view from where I lived there's this really big mountain range um it's called Mount Via and there's like um historical as well as mythological implications behind it. But um it's really beautiful because um, I just grew up and walked to school every day with that mountain, like right there, like kind of like here in Utah, but a lot greener. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'd say that's the second thing is um, just nature and the greenery and being able to value that. I think that the connectivity to earth that I think a lot of people have lost or mm-hmm. maybe don't value as much anymore, but that's just something I've noticed for myself as being very important. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Um, definitely, I feel like I grew up there with, of course, being LDS and attending a family ward there. Um, the congregation there where um, I met a lot of people from all, all over because uh, the, the congregation we went to... Um, was the only English-speaking ward in the area. And so you had a lot of people from overseas who would like um, expats, as well as people who came to help with the education system at the LDS high school. And so I got to meet people from like Australia and New Zealand and just people who came from all walks of life, which I think was already cool to see. Like um, for me, I so now I place importance and value in multiculturalism and diversity that's something that I really enjoy and um want to promote more of because I feel when any one mindset becomes the major idea and everyone has to prescribe to it we lose the value in individual voice and so many other things like there's so many beautiful facets to human beings that I love seeing in so many different ways that if we all were looked worshipped lived the same way life would be really really boring and mm-hmm. I, I I don't want to live that way <laughs> yeah I agree I agree yeah um what were some of the challenges yeah I'm mean, kind of as I mentioned was um socially I I think for a lot of reasons I just didn't fit in very well um it was interesting because um can I Yes, go ahead. Can I ask, did you feel like you fit in? I mean, you were only six, but a lot of individuals know of their sexuality when they're young. My son says kindergarten. So did you feel, um, were those kind of feelings brought up when you lived in Denver or just when you Mm -hmm. moved to Samoa? Gotcha, good question. I like to say that in some ways I was a late bloomer because I am... for me, I like to say that I, before I was aware of my sexuality, I was just aware that I was different. Um, and so for me, I didn't necessarily have the language or even like I feel the mental construct to even consider that as being mm-hmm. a thing. And I think in a lot of ways that is because of my upbringing in a conservative LDS household was that it's like that's not even an option so we're Mm -hmm. not going to even entertain that option Mm -hmm. and so it's like my brain couldn't even Mm -hmm. consider it as an option and so I definitely feel like no I I definitely feel like the feelings of 
being attracted to men did not come until much later, but feeling different, that was always there. I, I always knew that I was different for some reason or another. I could never, for a long time, I didn't know or couldn't put my finger on it, but the feeling of being other was definitely there. Yeah. You know, and just the fact that you recognize that and then you have all these voices around you confirming that has to be sort of terrifying for a little kid. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Instead of being encouraged or it's a beautiful thing or look how LeGrand does this or that, let's let let's be more like LeGrand. Like, you know, it sounds like it was more of a negative thing, like mm-hmm. LeGrand. You know, you can't be that feminine. You can't do this. You can't mm-hmm. do that. Um yeah, that has to be very confusing to a kid because kids are innocent. Kids are kids. Kids are kids. <laughs> they are going to move and talk and and be interested in things without, you know, you, they're just kids. They're, they're kids. innocent. And that's the thing that, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, that I look back on as being particularly tragic is the idea that I feel like a lot of my childhood in the sense of expression and self-discovery was stunted. I feel like my emotional um, uh, and mental growth didn't really take off until I left that. And that's, to me, really sad. The fact that I didn't have the chance to really figure things out until much later in life. And not not to say I'm I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason and that there's meaning behind every hard, difficult and also good thing. But it still doesn't change the fact that it was... It was a tragedy <laughs> in a lot of ways that I didn't get a chance to be a kid in a typical sense that I already had a ton of people telling me who I needed to be, what I wasn't, what I should do more of. And that was exhausting. <laughs> yeah. And I I was just thinking, you mentioned that the schools were run by the church. Mm-hmm. So really, the church was your life. It 100% You went was. to school that was run by the church. You went to a congregation. Everything, your my, friends, your my family. My dad was a teacher, vice principal, and principal at the LDS high schools. And so there's kind of, you know, the, the funny stereotype that people like to say that the bishop's kids are the worst. Mm-hmm. Well, almost as bad is the, um, the principal's kid mm-hmm. is just as bad. And so I had to be like this straight-laced, perfect um, uh, paragon <laughs> for um, uh, being LDS, good old Mormon boy, and... And at the time, I was like, I like, that was my passion, mm-hmm. <laughs> being the most goody two-shoes old. Yes. Yeah, that was like, the very. Fo- you were very focused. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure you got a lot of positive feedback playing that role. Yeah. Oh, wow. I yeah. And so I'd say with that, kind of echoing off of that was, um, I think the hardest thing of growing up in Samoa was feeling like I didn't have the room to once I figured out, I'd say like I figured out my sexuality around the time that I was 15. (laughs) It took me a long time to kind of put words to it Mm -hmm. and to kind of like um, put language around it. I mean, like I'm, I'm attracted to men, like being able to admit that Mm -hmm. it took a long time. It's funny. It actually the time frame of it was that we'd actually come to a um back come we'd come back to Colorado for a family reunion December of 2011 and it was literally my birthday of around that time where I was like oh <laughs> this isn't this is a thing and like um 
And like, I remember I was like sitting outside and it was snowing and I like my grandma at the time where they were living at the time had this porch swing and I was sitting on that porch swing wrapped up in a blanket and was crying (laughs) because I was like, I'm attracted to men. (laughs) And it was kind of this big moment of like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is terrifying. I don't know what to do with this. Like my whole life has been this. And like, and at the time I was like, it's still gonna be this. But what do I do with this? And so there was just a lot of, I feel, I feel like I didn't have necessarily the tools equipped to even like one understand it, two handle it, three someone even talk about it. And so for like for almost like two years, I didn't really talk to anyone about it. Like it just festered inside, and I didn't know what to do about it. And I think that was one of the hardest things. Was like it was like my junior into senior year of um high school was really hard because I got to the point where I was like, I kind of do want to date a guy, but I will be crucified. Like (laughs) if this comes out and like, it's almost like gossip is rampant and a weakness of people in Samoa. (laughs) Anyone will tell you if someone says something, it'll make the rounds within a night or a day. Like it's... They're on it. They're on it. (laughs) Well, it's a small island. It's a small island. Not a lot to do. You got to talk about people. You got to talk about people. It's true. (laughs) Especially if you're family. Yeah. (laughs) Nature and talking about people. Yeah. There we go. That's what you do. Or or rugby if you're a guy. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, rugby. Not not to hit on it, but it just wasn't my thing. Yeah. You didn't like to get hit? No, <laughs> like I'd, I'd rather not have like a chronic injury from, from from a sport. That that's just sports in general, not particularly just rugby. But yeah, yeah. I was gonna ask you um, about when you were a little boy. If your mom and dad and your brothers, you have two brothers or a sister, younger sister. Um, I had two brothers at the time of when we moved. Um, uh, I have. So just listing off siblings, I have an older brother, an older adopted sister that we adopted while we were there in Samoa. She used to be our cousin, but then um, family adopted her just to help her with a a better family situation in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. And then, of course, me, number three in that equation. And then I had three younger brothers. So there's six of us total, plus, of course, um, uh, my dad and my mom. Okay. So eight Eight in total, yeah. Yeah, that's all we have. So when you were in Samoa, I'm not sure how many siblings you had at that point, but you you said that people recognized and said things to you. Mm-hmm. Your parents had to have been aware that that was happening. What was their response? Um, mostly it was treated, because it was in a lot of ways, treated as bullying. Mm-hmm. Like it's, these things are not you. These mm-hmm. things aren't don't define you so you don't have to listen or believe them and so in many ways I feel like that was an appropriate response of like it's not something I wanted and it's not something that I at that time of course related to and so I didn't want anything to do with it and so at the same time so I feel like my parents response was appropriate treated Mm -hmm. as bullying Mm -hmm. of like you know in some ways stand up for yourself or other ways it's like talking to like the students or the parents or the teachers at the time um and so I feel like their response was mostly that as as a kid of like um it it's bullying and let's treat it as such and Mm -hmm. these things don't define you so do you feel like um your older brother stepped up a lot my older brother definitely um uh 
obviously he can't be there all the time because we're yeah, different ages and different years, grades. Three, three years, years different. Apart, yeah. yeah. Um, but whenever he had the chance, he always he always stood up for me. Like uh, when people would say stuff to him, he's like, "No, don't say that about my brother." Or um, uh, I remember there were several times where um, when I was younger. Spe- like specifically younger younger like um like three four or five just having him actively you know take a physical protective role and I think that's something that he um he never necessarily stopped doing it but it was always like um even if it wasn't visible he definitely had um a, a protective mindset in that regard yeah that's really beautiful I've seen that in my own family hunters mm-hmm. older brothers three years older mm-hmm. So I was just interested how your relationship with with your brother. Yeah. Um, wow. So you you went to you lived there till you were eighteen, mm-hmm. and then did you go on an LDS mission? I did at eighteen. Yes. Mm-hmm. And where did you go? I went to Missouri St. Louis. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. That will help you appreciate Samoa. <laughs> I'm only kidding, audience. It was a little joke. I went to Idaho. We can we can laugh. We're allowed to laugh about it, you know. Yeah, where we're sent by revelation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, how was that um, change for you? It was. I. It was something I knew needed to happen. It was something I'd felt for myself was the best thing at that time, but. It was arguably the most traumatic experience of my life. Yeah. And um, I like to say three quarters of it was trauma. The mm-hmm. other quarter of it was glorious. Mm. And um, much, I'd say percentage wise would be similar to growing up in Samoa. Yeah. In, in the sense that there was a lot of really difficult and traumatic and hard things for me. But there was also a lot of good. Right. And... At the end of the day, I know that everything happens for a reason. And so that's that's what's helped me have a lot of peace surrounding my experience as a missionary. Uh, is just I have so many problems with mission life and how things are set up and leadership. And I could do a, my own podcast episode about yeah. things that I disagree about in that yeah. regard. But yeah. yeah, that would be a fun podcast. <laughs> But we endure it because we're told we're supposed to and that we'll be blessed Yes, and that we're called of God. So there's a lot of expectations and pressure Mm -hmm. to, even though you may have different ideas or thoughts or see things that you feel are inappropriate, Mm -hmm. you don't really have a platform as an 18-year-old to challenge those things. No, you do not. Or a 19-year-old sister. You know, it's just, you don't. You're not going to have any power in those situations. No, none whatsoever. But I think um, all missions aren't equal. And a lot of our missionaries are a lot of people that I say are missionaries. They're mine. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of these kids that come home deal with trauma their whole lives from their missions. It's true. We need need to recognize that. I think that's one thing. um, If I could say anything to anyone in leadership or consideration that like these are kids. These are kids going out into the world trying to preach and testify of something that may, they may not know very much about or, two aren't even sure if they believe in it. Mm-hmm. And But societally and culturally, they may feel pressure to do so. Mm-hmm. And even if 
they go for the, the right reason, quote unquote, of wanting to spread goodness, of wanting to connect with people and help people have a better quality of life through a mm-hmm. message of hope. I feel that there's so much systemic issues within it that prevent people from authentically sharing goodness in a mission setting. Mm-hmm. And that's disappointing because the whole idea I feel of missionary work, if the word gospel is good news of goodness, of sharing goodness with people, mm-hmm. it's it's hindered by what I see as systemic problems of how people run things, of numbers over people, of mm-hmm. are they getting baptized versus we want to just connect and be friends with people and help them to see that there's positivity in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I remember so many instances on my mission where I just... I was trying so hard to do it exactly as they were telling me how to do it. And I still felt it was so wrong. And then I would try to do it my way and then I'd get chastised for it. I was told I wasn't a good missionary. Mm -hmm. I I got told that, no, you got to do it this way. Otherwise, you're... You're not being an effective well, representative. Well, you're being disobedient, Elder. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sorry, I should have been a mission president. There's still time to call me. You're <laughs> <laughs> call Jill now. Call Jill Hazard Rowe as a mission president. Oh, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's all that guilt and all that those games in your head. Oh, I'm not being successful because I'm being disobedient, which really your disobedience is really how it should be. We should always lead with love. I don't care what religion or mm-hmm. political party or whatever your game in, is in life. If we don't lead with love and connection to one another, then the organization has no power in my mind. Mm-hmm. There was actually something that, that kind of what you're talking reminded me of a friend mentioned to me that the word sin in the Bible as it's translated from either I think it's either the Greek the Greek or the Hebrew root of the word means to miss the mark and if we're going by that context so many people have missed the mark in society of love of leading with love and wanting to help people be better people with love if you're if we're going by that definition Everyone's sinning in the church because we've missed the mark. We have missed that people and love will always be the center. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So you you made it, though. You survived. I I, I always had the impression, LeGrand, that you came out um, much later, even after your mission. I came out. um, So my mission was from March 2015 to March 2017. And you never shared on your mission. I did, surprisingly. Oh, no. (laughs) To both good and bad responses. I mean, to your mission president? To my mission president, because at the time I was taught it's good to have more information to help your mission president know how to have revelation. About you. About you. (laughs) From God. (laughs) Okay, look around. You you just said that out loud. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. I know more about you, then I'll receive more inspiration from God about you. Okay, so you told him mm-hmm. because you felt that was the right thing to do. Yeah, I had two mission presidents, actually. Um, one for arguably like almost two thirds of my mission and one for like the last third. Um, and so my first mission president, the 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 vibe that I got, whether it was intent, his intention or not, it felt more don't ask, don't tell. Mm. He wasn't negative about it. He wasn't trying to say, like, um, he didn't try to give me any advice. He mm-hmm. just said, like, thank you for sharing that with me. Um, just he, he basically just said, like, you know, 
it's not appropriate to share, don't share it and don't talk about it. And oh, like, so you came out to him and he said, okay, that's good information. Don't ever say that again. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> don't share that with anyone. Yeah. And um, my second mission president was, he didn't necessarily say those words, but um, I definitely feel like it was probably similar in the mindset of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel that um, I learned really quickly not to tell him if I told anyone. Mm. because um, I felt there was a backlash for it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there were, I think I can count my hand. I think there's only two instances where I shared it aloud with someone we were teaching. And both times it was because I felt moved upon by inspiration mm-hmm. to share it of like one instance was a woman struggling with the, the possibility, not even the, the fact, the possibility that her daughter might be bisexual. And I remember, like, she was so scared, so freaked out, and so worried that her daughter was going to hell. And I literally said, I was like, I stand before you as a living testament that people can be both Christian and also be LGBTQ. I didn't use it in those words at the time, of course. But I I said, like, you know, I am attracted to men. And she was like, oh, wow. And it completely changed her perspective of how she viewed people. it gave her hope for her daughter in the sense that like there can be nuance there can be different things within Mm -hmm. a prescribed idea and the second time was with an investigator who she was um for those you don't an investigator is someone who wants to know more about the church and meets with missionaries or um, sometimes uh, just gets trapped. <laughs> Come on. Gets stalked on the on the street and gets trapped. Yeah. yeah. Very much They're so. on a bus. <laughs> They're on a bus. And They're... they became investigators. <laughs> in this regard, it was um it was someone who was interested in meeting with us, which I which was refreshing. I don't. Yeah. I've never been a fan of the the trap method. Yeah, it's always <laughs> nice when they're there because they want to be. Because they want to be exactly. And I remember she was saying like, I I don't know if I want to believe in a god mm-hmm. who doesn't like gay people is essentially what she said. And I said like, why? Well, similar of like you know, as someone who's attracted to men, I know that God loves me. And, and I think that also helped her accept the idea that, like, um, for me, as someone who still primarily identifies as Christian, that my relationship to God is a loving one. It's not mm-hmm. one of damnation and hellfire. It's not one of punishment and shame and guilt. It's, it's one of love. And that's ultimately what I wanted to share with people. And so those are the only two instances that I can recall where I shared it with people Outside of my companions, every once I was going to say your companion was sitting there. So. There were some. There, there were some companions that I opened up to about it. Yeah. Because um, I felt it was appropriate, or I, I, I felt a good friendship with them that I wanted them to know this thing about me, or that, I mean, and at the time I was also struggling heavily. It was just like trying to understand and navigate these two really big parts of myself. Right. Insanely difficult, while also being a missionary insanely hard and i think having the support of of a loving companion of like this is someone who's gonna walk with me every day and live with me for an extended period of time as like super roommates sometimes i feel it could be good to have a support system from them to know that i'm going through this hard thing i'm trying to navigate where i'm at with this and there was a couple companions that were just very very kind about it very open and loving that still in a lot of ways check up on me it's like how are you doing with that and and i and i love them and i appreciate that for them that from them so yeah it's it's interesting that you know sharing with people on my mission because for the most part, I'd say like 90% of the time outside of like 
a mission president leadership context, sharing it with people was always a positive thing. Oh, that's really nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you made it through and you came home mm-hmm. and what did you think was going to happen next? That I was going to get married to a girl in the temple. Oh, really? <laughs> that wow. was still on my mind. Yes. Um, wow. That's, I mean, you know, they have this thing for missionaries. If you aren't aware, I don't know if it's changed. It's been a long time since I've... The exit interview where you're the... like, when will you be married? <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, but there's a, it's called my plan is what we did. Where it's mm. like basically you, you fill out a questionnaire of like, are you going to go to school? If so, where? If so, what are you going to do? And so in a lot of ways, I think it's useful in a sense of like, okay, have a plan. Like what, don't just, I feel like this is not just for missionaries returning home. I think it's good for anyone to set a plan for themselves. Do you have to always follow that plan? Not necessarily. But as long as you have something, I feel like energetically it creates the space for you to find where you need to go. And so I definitely had a plan and um, a wife was part of that at the time. So Wow. I know. And so, um, yeah, I'd like my goal was to like part of that was, you know, coming to UVU, going to school, majoring in dance, um, uh, finding a wife, um, you know, things like that, I think were... Those were the main things when I first came off. That, so like, you did a lot of that. I did. I did a lot of that. Aside and from you the started wife. and you started dancing when I got to college. Yes. Yes. You started dancing. I mean, I thought my son started late. He started his senior year in high school. You started your freshman in college. Yeah. I like to say that um, <laughs> dance became something that started as a hobby when I was in my senior year of uh, high school. I really. <laughs> I started with Just Dance, believe it or not. Mm. I, I just loved playing Just Dance. It was super fun. And then I, like, turned to just dancing with music as exercise and cardio. Like, that. I just, I would lock the door. I would clear the space and I would just play music and then I would just dance for cardio. Like, and to me, that was, that was so cathartic. I like to say that a lot of people start with training. I started with improvisation. And improvisation will always be, like, this sacred thing for me of just moving and just dancing. And... And I like to say also dancing is just in my blood (laughs) that like culturally my perception, I suck (laughs) at Polynesian cultural dance. I don't feel like I can pull it off. I don't feel as one who can embody it very well, but dance is still in me. And so I found my way to it and started formally training when I got to college. And that was rough. (laughs) That was hard. Probably with um, other classmates that have been dancing for a for very years. long time yes. and, and actually know terms of dance. And It's funny you mention that. My very <laughs> first class, first day of class, as I walk in there and it's um like a, in college, you know, like there's the course sequence. There's like the first technique class you have to take. And I, I majored in modern contemporary dance. And I remember walking in there and she's like, and plie. And I was like, what the hell does plie mean? You're bending your legs. So I'm just going to do that. But I just remember words were thrown out there and their jargon and I just was like what is going on and that's on? like a basic for ballet which yeah. most dancers have that foundation of mm-hmm. ballet well because I've seen you dance you are a beautiful dancer Thank you. so kudos to you and shout out to like the human stories audience we can do anything at any age right agreed it's it's funny I actually six months onto my mission I had like this brick on the head movement from God um, at least my perception of God as as it stands of like how I was watching like this it was a Mormon message about this aerial dancer based out of London 
and I watched it like five times and every time it like the feeling got stronger it's like by the way I need you to be a dancer and I was like wait 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 wait. (laughs) I had no plan for this I had no even like inkling towards this I just did it for fun and like before this I wanted to be a creative writer and like to go into like writing books and like poetry and that kind of thing and like which I still do love doing I just say my my um my medium for storytelling just changed and yeah. so but yeah I I feel like there's a Martha Graham quote who for those of you who do not know Martha Graham is in many ways the mother of modern dance and is a pioneer of modern dance in America but <clears throat> She's quoted when asked, like, why she chose dance as a career. She said that I did not choose, dance chose me. And with that, you live the rest of your life. And that's how I feel, honestly, that dance just slammed itself into me. And I was like, okay, I'll do this. And and I, and I love it. And I don't regret that decision at all. And I know that dance is going to always be part of my life because of that. The magical moment on stage where it's like, you, you just feel it. You mm-hmm. feel you feel the people. You feel yourself. You mm-hmm. feel the universe. I feel like no one, no one else has to do this. It's just a me thing. That when I'm on stage, I dance for my ancestors. I dance for me, and I dance for God. And it's it's a sacred space for me always. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's just such a beautiful thing. You know, and all humans don't find their passion. Unfortunately, and, um, yeah. You know trying to think what mine is but to have an outlet like that that Mm -hmm. draws you and and keeps you feeling so full in life is so beautiful so I'm so happy that you decided when you went to college that I'm I'm I would have loved to see your parents faces (laughs) anyone else (laughs) my well uh, speaking of that my mom was really supportive she was just like if this is something you want to do then go for it and my my dad didn't say a ton at the time but like I still I still remember there was one time like I'd performed a solo that I did for them um when I went home to visit when they were still living in Samoa and um and my dad said so what's your plan uh backup plan (laughs) (laughs) what's plan b I was like let's talk I just bore my soul to you in this (laughs) solo and that's your response I was (laughs) like At the time, I was feeling very, very unhappy with that response. But right. I understand, though, it's like when you're raised in the culture of, like, make money, support mm-hmm. your family. Mm-hmm. That's just how how your perception of what a job should be. It's like, oh, you can do this for fun. But, mm-hmm. like, yeah. And so for the most part, my dad didn't say a ton. My mom was supportive. And then um, there was a lot of people that scoffed at me, though. <laughs> I, You know, I'm just feeling inspired to say this. You and my son, which you guys know each other from dance, should just get the hell out of here and go travel the world and audition, (laughs) go to Europe, go and just live with a backpack. That's it's funny you mention that because one of my best friends and I were saving up because we want to go next year in summer for a Europe trip. And I want to go and see all the different if there's companies out there, dance troops and just just see the world. Honestly, like I feel like I'm like. I think you need to start a blog and so that yeah. all the dancers in Utah <laughs> can know about can it. sort of follow what you're doing and the people and the things you're meeting. Maybe you could even have poll when you're doing that tour of setting up auditions for Utah dancers. I don't know. That would be I'm, so I'm, cool. I'm really feeling like you could make a huge impact and influence on some of the dancers in Utah that haven't really found their niche yet. Yeah. There, I like to say that um, 
those who stand on the outskirts are going to be the ones that change the world. And it's it's not the it's not the people who all look the same. It's not the people who all sound the same. It's the people who <laughs> I like to say Martha Graham just had a chip on her shoulder and so she made dance the way she wanted it to. And I feel like the the people who want to create and who will create mm-hmm. art finds a way and it will. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Okay, so you did the dance for your dad and he <laughs> wanted to know what plan B was. Yeah. Sometimes in life, I found out and like, I need a plan C, plan D, plan E. <laughs> all the way to Z. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to have it all lined up. Um, I, I actually have something on my porch that says something like, We're, life is all is made up of plan B. You mm. know, in our experience, like our life now is so different than we thought. It, oh, and it's so yeah. beautiful. Like plan B is actually better than plan A. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we did dismiss plan B. That's off topic <laughs> what your dad was insinuating but sometimes when life's changes or plans change it's not always a bad thing agreed that's that's actually something that i've been learning a lot throughout life and especially lately is embracing that the best thing is not going to be something that i force it's yeah. it's it's the it's kind of a Buddhist idea of non-resistance that like Mm -hmm. when you surrender to the river, you surrender to the flow that you Mm -hmm. find your place. And I've just been learning that, that the best things in life, I don't have to rush for and I don't have to force them. They come to me and I go to them. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's been a, it's been a practice in patience and kind of unlearning Mm -hmm. these ideas of hustle culture, as I like to call it, that make money, get the job, do the thing, buy the house, Mm-hmm. Your life looks this way. This is how you are successful. And here's how you quantify that. And it's like life is beautiful and all of us have different journeys. And mm-hmm. I think accepting that life is going to be different, different from myself. <laughs> if I were to look at if my past self, like in high school or even like being a missionary were to look at me now, they'd be freaking terrified. <laughs> like, really? Like, I think they'd love it. I mean, I feel like they'd, they'd... probably be saying it's about time. <laughs> It's about time. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. And and beyond all that stuff you're talking about, for me personally, the hardest thing for me to have learned is to let go of control. Mm, As a mom, particularly control of the narrative I saw for each one of my children and learning to let their my kids if they're listening are probably out laughing now i'm so much better you have to give me credit I, <laughs> you have to see where you came from <laughs> yeah, you have to remember mom and when i told you everything you had to do but letting go of control as a parent also is liberating not only for you but for the person you were trying to control and that's when a relationship yeah. can really really start to form mm-hmm. so when you let go of that i agree so when did you officially come out? So I came out, um, so mission was, of course, 2015 to 2017. I moved to the U.S. six weeks after returning home. Oh, so, so your family was still? Still in Samoa. Okay, And Samoa. I uh, moved to, um, I spent a summer in Provo, actually. Um, uh, I crashed at my uncle's place um, in Provo for a little bit, and then I got my own place and bopped around on some jobs and tried to find trying to find my footing was really mm-hmm. hard but ultimately what I needed to go through but um I came out that summer of 2017 oh really quickly yeah. Rel- yes. relatively quickly. see when I met you at my house I thought you'd just come out <laughs> like well, a few I've, months earlier well I feel like um uh, 
I when I met you, I think it was like 2018. So it really wasn't that long ago, oh, okay. all things considered, yeah. because I think it was, yeah, it was relatively soon, yeah. um, uh, comparatively. Look at that five years ago. Oh, holy right. crud. Five years. That's yeah. crazy to think about. So who did who did you come out to? I feel like um even before back in like senior year of high school I came out to select individuals I didn't come out publicly did you ever come out to your parents I came out to my mom first um uh when I was in my in senior in high school and I came out to like my best friend and a couple other close friends and then another good friend as well so there was there was a small group of people that I did like before the public coming out Mm -hmm. and um I never I also came out, and of course, you know, the selected people on my mission, mm-hmm. as well as I came out in an email to family of like, at the time I was like, I experienced same-sex attraction. <laughs> and it's like, like looking at it now, it's just, to me, it just sounds, the, the language sounds really silly because it's like, to me, it's more than just experiencing attraction to the same sex. It's, it's just a part of me. It's just, a, it's not the only thing that makes Le Grand Le Grand. It's just one of the things but it's a, an important thing yeah and so I feel that um but I didn't come out publicly until it was yes summer slash fallish of 2017 and um I feel like the the response was um a vastly positive for the most part and I think do in reason to the idea that I I came out but I was still like but I'm still a member of the church and I'm just gonna find my way forward that kind of thing yeah I think that's where you are when we met yeah definitely I feel so <laughs> and it's okay yeah it's all like a it's, it's a process it's a process it's super difficult you know and I think we're allowed to to change our minds we're allowed to figure things out things things don't things never should stay the same well it's just when you're so part of a, an organization, a church that has has really has been a part of everything that you've yeah. ever known, yeah, literally. So, you know, I, I'm sure it's frustrating for a lot of people. Like, oh, you're queer. Why don't you just leave? Like, it's it's hard, and and you have to give not only the queer community but also families and parents time to, um, for me, like take a right turn and figure things out. And, yeah, I, w- I wish that we could just like that, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just move on. But, yeah, I think when we met, you were still holding on to the church and yeah. had hope in that. That, definitely, whole, that whole same gender term is just such a turn off to me. It's, it's like it, it feels it's very so demeaning. It feels very antiseptic. It feels very like, um, oh, I can't even think. We need to label you and this is what you are. <laughs> Same gender attracted. It, yeah, it feels more like a the the verbiage behind it sounds more like a condition. Yes, <laughs> and it's yes. like, I, I, and we recognize I'm not sick. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it took a long time for me to actually come to terms with that. It's like I'm not sick with something. It's just it's just a part of me. It's mm-hmm. just it's me, and mm-hmm. that was things things take the time that they need to to be figured out, and and I think in going with that like. As someone who still identifies as Christian and um, looks at my relationship, like with the church, still, it's been interesting to see how, like, um, like leaving it was actually the best thing for my faith, which is really interesting. I think a lot of people, okay, 
well-meaning people, I must say that first before I say what I'm about to say. Well-meaning people were well like, meaning. don't do this. Don't y- like You're it. very kind. <laughs> I always... Well-meaning can be, those people can be hurtful. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I had someone who I cared about refer to it as spiritual suicide. Mm. Um, and leaving I was, the church. Leaving the church mm, yeah. was spiritual suicide. And I didn't. It's interesting. It's it's getting this summer will be a year since I um, left the church, and um, it's it's interesting because um, I left the church the beginning of Pride Month, <laughs> so the timing was you know I didn't plan that. It just happened. That you way. had a party to go to. I don't. <laughs> yeah, things so. to do. <laughs> but um, I remember. This is so. I feel like this is a quote-unquote controversial thing, like, within the church specifically of, like, God will never, like, lead you away from the church. Like, that's something that's good, that's been told to me a lot. It's like, well, like, you know, the Holy Ghost will never, tell you, will never tell you something that's, like, not in accordance with these things. Like, these right. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, et cetera. And um, I actually felt prompted spiritually that it was the right decision that I needed to make. And for, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons that, like, because... Um, I don't doubt the efficacy and importance of that inspiration of needing to do that for me. But there's questions of like, you know, but but, but why? 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 Why was that the best way? Like, I'd always felt like staying and making positive change in that regard, like staying a member. Like, I still attend, but I'm not a member in name anymore. And I was curious as to like why that was. And uh, I had the thought the other day that it's like, my relationship with the church was bound up in trauma, bound up in years of trauma. And to heal from that trauma, to have a relationship with God, my relationship with a higher power, I had to step away from the trauma because it's wrapped up in the church. And as soon as I did that, the trauma could heal. And this trauma that was blocking me from having a better relationship with myself, with my perception of deity, vastly improved. I feel like my understanding of... Of, of God and what I believe to be God grew so much and meaningfully only after I left. Well, because don't you think, I mean, we hear the story over and over from not just Mormonism, but other Christian denominations. It's like you're taught it's the only true church. So mm-hmm. God, the church represents God. Mm-hmm. So all the trauma you've had and all the things that happened in the name of God, mm. It's connected to, to pain, right? I had the same experience. I probably stayed almost 10 years after Hunter came out with a lot of trauma for the way that we decided to support him and speak out. Um, and one Sunday I was just sitting in church and I I thought this is the last time. How could a place that was so familiar seem so foreign? And it's almost like God told me, Jill, the only way you'll heal is to leave. Mm-hmm. So I understand that feeling, and um, I, I don't even know about God or anything at this point, mm-hmm. um, because, like I said, when your whole life represents God in a church, and that church has done so much pain, mm-hmm. and um, continues to do pain to the queer community, um, I guess I just need to give myself permission to get to know God again. And as, and, as you and should, they are going to be so different than what I've been taught. 
you know and i think that's a beautiful thing to give yourself the permission to do that yeah i think a lot of people would be better off in this world if they gave them the per- they gave themselves the permission to do things like that i'm not saying you have to leave a church I'm not saying you even have to like do something drastic, but I think giving yourself the per- giving myself the permission to do something that I knew was going to help and aid in my healing mm-hmm. and growth. I cannot stress enough how important that is. And you know, we're not like touting Christianity. I mean, oh, it's yeah. also like okay for someone to say I don't believe in anything, mm-hmm. but feel good about that. I guess for me personally, it's like I feel like i am been been lazy and I've been hurt so much I just cut that off. Mm-hmm. And so spirituality doesn't even just come with believing in a deity, right? Spirituality comes in a lot of forms and I'm mm-hmm. I'm ready to like accept that and mm-hmm. to and to fill things that I've been dormant with for a while. Yeah. Even when I was in the church, to be honest. Understandable. <laughs> it's funny, like I And I don't want, like, my words to come across as Christianity is the key for everyone. It's been the key for me. And it's, I I cannot stress enough the importance of individual journeys. Mm -hmm. That whether that's Christianity, atheism, agnosticism, no religion, every religion, faith, not faith. I, I feel that whatever life's journey asks of you, I feel like we should be, be willing to go with that to go with the change to accept the things that we cannot control and 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 allow it and Mm -hmm. it's 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 interesting for me i feel like i could never say i love myself until like this past year and it's like now i can i I can say that i love myself like it's i could say i could say before i could i liked myself Mm -hmm. and but subconsciously, subconsciously, I'm sure you always felt like you had to change a certain way to be accepted by God, which mm-hmm. is so damaging. I don't know why churches and people that lead these churches and people in power do not see the damage they're doing to God's children. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I probably have talked too much on this podcast. Oh, you're fine. I just like to listen. It's a discussion. I'm on one. <laughs> We're allowed to be on ones. <laughs> on one. No, I just, I think, I just feel of your goodness and I feel of your, like the journey you've taken. And just since this is the first time I've seen you since 2015, I'm, I'm happy for you that you've, um, have control of your own spiritual well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's, to me, that's ultimately what it comes down to is like the empowerment of of you choosing something and doing it for you. <laughs> that I think that's... And yeah. you have to... You don't have to, but I hope you know, like, that you're not a mistake, that God loves mm. you. Like, your being, your deity created you just as you are. Mm-hmm. If there's something bigger than all of this, they created all of us. Mm-hmm. They created all of us and are aware of all of us and love all of us. And I and I echo your your statement earlier. I mean, the biggest thing we need to learn, and for me, like I always thinking about this word love because I see it so freely on Facebook. I love you, I love you. Mm. And, you know, love's the most important thing. We just need to love each other. 
but within all segments of society, I see a lot of not love. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really like an intentional thing that we have to learn. I feel like we're changed once we learn how to do that. But it is difficult. It is. And I think sometimes we have to talk about, yes, love's the goal, but let's talk about ways we can get there. Like, what does that look like in real terms? I feel like um, there's so much emphasis on, on love, but there's not very much the conversation of that it's such a huge process to get mm-hmm. there. And there's a lot of action involved. There's a lot of extending of compassion and grace. Yeah. Because <laughs> I feel like, oh my gosh, there's so many cringy things that I've done in life <laughs> where I'm just like, oh, if I could have just go back and erased those and like, it's just... I needed to go through those cringy parts of myself, these difficult, these hard, these, I mean, in a lot of ways, traumatizing things for myself to get to where I'm at. And I think honoring your past self helps to acknowledge and like love your present self even more. Yeah, I was going to say that, like, no matter how we were, like, we have to at some level love that person. It's true. Because we were doing the best we could, right? And then as we grow and we progress and um, learn about things, mostly about ourselves, I'm talking, you know, and we change. Mm-hmm. I love that old person. Sometimes I mourn for that old person, to be honest. They were, yeah, they were trying their best. They yeah. were doing, they were working so hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So... Before we we conclude, there's I'm thinking about your parents like when you officially came out. Mm-hmm. This isn't going away. It's not a phase. This is how God created me. Um, how has your parents or your siblings mm-hmm. response been? I like to say, and I, I kind of laugh about this, my, my siblings were all just kind of like, huh, yep, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were, in a lot of ways, just very nonchalant about it. And I was like, and to... And you're like, come on, be shocked. (laughs) I need you to be a little more dramatic. Yeah, I need you to go, what? (laughs) Yeah, they were very loving. My siblings were very loving and accepting. And I've never had issues with them, honestly, in that regard. That was never a problem. Um, My relationship with my parents had a lot of ups and downs. And ultimately ending in something beautiful. But the what I guess when I first... um, my dad, um, bless his soul, he passed in 2020. Oh, I'm sorry, um, uh, the grand. Yeah, um, oh. that was a really hard year just <laughs> for yeah. so many things. Not just COVID, but yeah. it was a hard year. But yeah. um, um, my relationship with my father specifically was one that was, I feel I always knew, no matter what, I always knew my dad loved me. Like that was never a question in my mind. But there were just things that... I think culturally that he'd grown up with or just how he handled or approached things was was triggering and hard for me. And some of those things were how he'd respond to things like rather than like a a favorite response of his whenever I would talk about stuff like this of like, you know, you know, I'm attracted to guys. I'm trying to like have a conversation with you about this, even though I suck at this and I'm trying something really hard. He the conversation would never go further than he's like, well, just don't forget who you are. Like r- rather than trying to facilitate, it was more of a shutdown of like, don't forget who you are. You're a child of God. And that comes with Tried all these the stipulations. Story. <laughs> and, and I, and I know 100% that came from a place of love because that's how he was raised, how he viewed things and how he felt 
in his own way was was going to be best for me. But also, bless him, he never tried to be like, well, why aren't you doing all these things? He was he was a peaceful, kind man that way. And it was interesting because I was working with my therapist at the time to work towards having a more serious conversation. I was like, I'm, I feel like I'm shut down. I feel like I don't know how to breach that conversation with my dad, that this isn't just a phase. This isn't just, I, I, f- I think like at the time I was kind of like, am I leaning towards leaving the church? I don't know that that question came up in my mind a lot. And, um, it was never something I did because I didn't feel like it was the right decision at the time. But, um, I still remember just having that, the conflict of trying to reconcile with my dad in a lot of ways. Um, but at the time my, um, my dad had gotten sick because, um, back in 2015, he'd gotten a brain tumor. Mm. Um, he had it removed and, um, they said, if I remember correctly, what my mother was telling me, the doctors told that it was benign, but it was the kind of tumor that, um, could come back, um, Mm. in the sense that he's like, if it's in, if it doesn't come back in five years, it shouldn't come back. It came back on the fifth year. Mm. (laughs) Um, and It was, so it was right around that time that I was having these conversations with my therapist of like, okay, how do I talk to my dad about this? How do I confront things with him? And then he got sick. And where it was at was at the front of his frontal lobe. Mm. And what is your frontal lobe responsible for? Um, uh, Motor skills and uh, speech. And so um, having a conversation, virtually impossible while he was sick. Um, Plus he was also like, still, they were still in Samoa at the time. And so the only a way we had was of course for video call and I remember distinctly one time when I video called him he could barely say my name he could barely say hi and I just remember being in tears I'm like how am I supposed to have this conversation with him when when his health is failing and I was really worried about him and I I didn't want to make it about me frankly it's like you know this is an important conversation but my dad's health is failing and so there was a lot of guilt in that regard of also Mm -hmm. like how do I have this conversation with him and then um it got to the point where like because of covid restrictions and lockdown my family couldn't go to New Zealand which was the closest facility I would say that had um that, that could treat him. They didn't have anything to treat him that, or that people specialized in it to treat him in Samoa. But New Zealand had its borders closed. Mm. And so the only other thing was to come to America. And my mom at the time had a lot of reservations with that because it's a long, difficult flight um, getting there. There's a lot of, obviously it costs a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, it was just, it would be uprooting my brothers from school, trying to just figure out, there was a lot of things. Yeah. But ultimately it got to the point where his health was failing to the point, it's like something needs to happen. And so they they went to Arizona to seek help because my grandma and my aunt and her, uh, and her daughter, my uh, cousin, um, lived at the time in Arizona. Um, they still do, I believe. <laughs> my memory doesn't serve me the best right now. But um, uh, they went to Arizona to seek treatment and... I remember going there because I wanted to be able to see him. I wanted mm-hmm. to be able because he was getting treatment. But COVID restrictions were still so tough, not even family could go in. No one could go in. You could only mm. call. And so I remember standing outside the hospital walls and just like putting my hand on the wall. And he was like three floors up. So I looked up at the window where I knew he was at and just being like, I want to talk to you. I want to see you. And I couldn't. And then what's really sad, this is... <laughs> I felt this was a little bit cruel. The week I went back, because school was starting, I went to see them in the summer. Um, uh, school started, and that week they opened up restrictions where fam could go see, and I was just really mad. Yeah. But, but um, I uh, I remember 
that I also wanted to have this conversation with my mom too. So then um, here I was leading up for it, getting ready for it. And then I get a text message at 8 a.m. in, uh, I believe it was, it was September. Um, I, it's like, call me, your dad has passed away. And I just remember being like, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to, to, we, we weren't done yet. Like, and I, and I mean that in a good way where I was like, oh, I wanted our relationship to keep growing and progressing. And, and that and it was really hard to kind of come to terms with like, this isn't something I get to reconcile in this life. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, and my personal beliefs, I believe that this life is not the end, that, that death is not the end and that people continue after this life. And so a lot of my reconciliation came with my dad in a more spiritual sense, talking to him for months on end, just trying to to feel him and his love. And I distinctly remember there was one day in particular where I was just, I was on my bed, just kind of talking to him. And, um, and I remember I was like, okay, like, I love you, dad. I'm going to go to bed now. Thanks for talking. Um, and I felt really strongly. It's like, um, they weren't words that I heard, but they were words that I felt. It's like, before you go to bed, there's something I need you to know. And, uh, and I was kind of like, that's interesting. Like, am I just imagining these words? And words too strong for me to imagine. It's like, I need to apologize for things. And one of those is how I treated you. Um, uh, and being able to, to have this moment of my dad acknowledging weakness in that moment and like having the reconciliation, that was such a special experience for me of like, I don't, I don't care if I've imagined it. And I, I believe I haven't of having the, having my dad being like, I love you. And I'm sorry that my capacity to love you wasn't there in that life, but I'm learning to love now in a way that is greater and is more whole and complete. And that was such a special experience for me with my father. And it's really interesting in the sense that my father's death was the best thing for my relationship with my parents because of one with my father, which I just outlined, as well as I I cannot read anyone's mind, but I feel very strongly my mom was more, much more reserved of like talking about these kinds of things. And it was difficult for her to, I think, acknowledge or talk about things at length. Like mm-hmm. she, she knew, I knew she loved me obviously. And she made sure to mention that, but I like to compare two instances. The first back in 2018, my mom came to visit me. We went out to dinner at, it was Red Lobster of all places. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I remember I whispered to her, I was like, our waiter's kind of cute. And she said, we don't, don't, don't talk, don't talk about that. It just shut down instantly. And I just remember being like, oh, well that sucked. I'm not going to talk to my mom about stuff anymore. That kind of thought came to mind. Fast forward to uh, spring 2022. Um, uh, family is relocated. There's a lot that's, that's happened that I think I can share in just a second, but we're sitting in a, a different restaurant. It's a ramen place. Love ramen. <laughs> but um, we're sitting there and I'm just minding my own business. And she like pokes me. She's like, that guy's kind of cute. What do you think about him? <laughs> and the difference in those two instances and how they married each other, I think was indicative of how much me and my mom's relationship had grown and changed. And I think it's because when my father passed... My mom understood how lonely I was. She, I think, she understood. She's like, she never said it in words, 
but her being like her missing my dad her missing the companionship of wanting that of she was feeling the loneliness she felt the loneliness and i was like and i and i and i was like mom this is how i feel all the time at the time i was like i i want that i want someone to love and to love me and it just happens to be i want it to be a man and and i think that really changed her perspective of that she had to go through loss and loneliness to understand what i was experiencing and she has gone through her own faith transition in a lot of ways and I'll let her share her story now. <laughs> but um, she's changed a lot in her perception of things. And it's been beautiful for both of us to kind of navigate a faith transition together and to see, yes, there's things that definitely that haven't changed, but there's been a myriad of beautiful things that have. And so long story short, that's how my relationship with my, my parents has improved and changed over the years. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So many sacred moments, really. But I have to... I believe like you do, whatever you felt and heard wasn't your voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything, LeGrand, um, that you want to share about your story before we wind up this podcast? That's a great question. Yeah. (laughs) I think... I think ultimately when it comes to stories and and sharing them the one thing that has always stuck with me from a friend that I connected with a while back that I always seek after authenticity to live authentically to have authentic reactions with people to connect in an authentic way if that's anything I can share in my story that anyone can relate to it's it's authenticity to live life being yourself being your best version of yourself and to never stop striving for growth. I, I'm not saying you have to go out and like conquer a mountain or to build a house from scratch, but people are worth saving and growing and becoming better people. And I've seen that in my life. I've seen there's too many beautiful people in this world for me to be okay with them living in a lesser version of themselves. And that's something I've always strived to do to be the best version of myself, to keep growing, to keep changing in a positive way, not just to change, to change, but because that's what's demanded, because change is the only thing that is certain in life, is that things are just going to keep going and going. And I think wherever we go, when we find what works for us, faith-wise, worldview-wise, career-wise, I think accepting and acknowledging that we as people are sacred and important and deserve time and attention, That that's it. Yeah. That, that's the ticket. Yeah. I love that. I, um, I often ask my guests two questions at the end of the podcast. Number one, what would you tell the queer child listening to this podcast? And number two, what would you tell their parents Mm. to the queer child however you may identify or see yourself as or as yet to see yourself I guess I would say love will always be the answer to love yourself to in spite of difficulty love your family in spite of difficulty love those around you and know that this moment is not forever this whatever difficult things you experience now or in the future are not forever 
and you're going to be okay, ultimately. It sucks, and it is hard, but it is going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And to the queer parents of the queer child, I would say, similarly, love. Love your child. Know that there's going to be a million and one reasons that you're going to want to have things be a certain way, to control a certain thing, or be this image you've had in your head, perhaps. If not, great on you. You're further ahead than a lot of people. But if not, try letting go of those. Release expectations. One thing that my therapist said to me one time, she asked, it's like, all of us have a picture wall in our heads of how we want our lives to look like. She asked me one day, what does your picture wall look like? And I said, I've had to knock that thing down. I've had to break it open. I would say break open that wall, break down that wall of pictures and look at the view instead. I love that. Break down that wall of pictures and look at the view instead. Wow. You shared an incredible story. Your story, LeGrand. <laughs> Thank you. And many insights and many things that I know I'll be thinking about and our human stories audience. So, you know, after you travel the world, become a famous <laughs> dancer, like your story is going to be different in five years. So it we will. might have to revisit that and, and see. And I'm totally fine with that. Okay. <laughs> That's the great thing about being alive, right? We change and we grow and we progress and then we slide back and then we grow. <laughs> and it's a beautiful thing. But I just really, really want the Human Stories audience to share this podcast with your family, your friends, anyone that you think would Actually, everyone would benefit from listening to LeGrand's story. So, you know, ask your friends to subscribe to the Human Stories podcast and have them listen. Give us feedback um, on how we're doing and how the stories have changed or touched your lives. And with that, I just want to thank you again, LeGrand, for being here. It's my, been, my, been my pleasure. And this is Jill Hazard-Rowe with Human Stories. Human Stories.